Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17? Deuteronomy 17. That should be on page 189 in the Pew Bible. Uh, Kindergarten and first graders may go to Children's Church if they'd like. Children's Church is downstairs now. The trailers do uh, do not exist anymore for us. So go downstairs and there's a children's church room under the sanctuary. Deuteronomy chapter 17, page 189. As we continue our study in Deuteronomy, we've come to a section of Deuteronomy that focuses uh, on the leaders of Israel, who God had to, to lead His people, what leadership looked like among God's people. And today we come to a really interesting text where Moses gives instructions about the king of Israel. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Let me read the text. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. You must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. I've been uh, really excited to preach this passage because, frankly, this passage of Scripture just fascinates me for a number of reasons. Um, One reason I find this passage so fascinating is because it's the only place in the Law of Moses where Moses gives instructions about the king of Israel, what, what the king should look like. So it's sort of a unique passage. You don't find this teaching Elsewhere in, in the first five books of the Bible, in the, in the Torah. Uh, another reason I find this pa- passage fascinating is that Moses gives this law here, but it wouldn't be until 400 years later that Israel would actually have its first king, which is kind of funny too. You know, why, why would it take so long? And not only that, but another fascinating aspect is that, is that the king appears to be kind of an optional thing for Israel. You know, they had to have priests, they had to have prophets, but when it came to the king, God wasn't saying, now you shall set up a king. He says, look, when you come to me saying, we want a king just like all the other nations, he's like, okay, fine, when you say that to me, this is what it needs to look like. So so you have this funny kind of backwards passage, because you would think that if God was giving instructions to form a new nation, that one of the things you'd really talk about, first of all, was the king. All right, who's in charge? Who's going to run this thing? And here it's sort of like, well, look, someday you guys are going to want a king, and when you do, this is what it needs to be. So, so I find it intriguing for that reasons, uh, those reasons. So as we look at this text, we're looking at 
a unique kind of passage about kingship in Israel. But I'm going to suggest that as we dig into it, we'll find that even though in some ways it's very unique and interesting, that many of the themes we find here actually carry over to a lot of leadership, not only in the Old Testament, but also into the church, that we get a picture here of some principles of leadership and that, that there's some really important ways that this passage leads us to the New Testament. So let's look at this text. When uh, Israel someday asked for a king, what was this king to be like? What was this king to do? And here in verses 15 to 20, we find what I think are probably sort of three groupings of commands for the king. There's sort of three things that Moses touches on that should govern or shape the way that this king leads Israel. And the first one is this. We have in verse 15, the eligibility requirements for the king. Who's allowed to even be considered the king of Israel? And there it is in verse 15. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. So, uh, you know, think about in, here in the United States, we elect a president, but the Constitution of the United States delineates certain eligibility requirements for who can even be considered president. And there's three of them in the Constitution. You know, you have to be 35 years old or older. You have to have been born in the United States. You have to be a natural citizen, natural-born citizen. And you have to have been in the United States for 14 years. So it's not like you can be born in the United States and then move away and then come back 35 years later and say, I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm here to lead the country. Well, in a similar kind of way, Israel had um, eligibility requirements for the king. And here's two of them. And the first is this. It has to be the person that God chooses. So unlike a presidential election in the United States, the, the king of Israel was not chosen by popular vote or by acclamation of the people god had to be the one choosing the king which is why you know you always see in the old testament a prophet showing up on somebody's doorstep with a horn full of oil pulls him aside dumps the oil on his head and says guess what you're king god chose you (laughs) wow i'm the king now but god god made those appointments when the people first came to the prophet samuel and they said we want a king we want to be like all the other nations uh, Samuel didn't say, okay, well, who are you thinking about? Let's have some candidates here. He just said, okay, fine, go home. God will tell you who it's going to be. So the Lord chose the king. And secondly, notice that the king must be from among your own brothers. You couldn't have a foreigner over you. You couldn't have a non-Israelite. Now, now what's that all about? Is this some kind of ethnic purity sort of thing? I don't think so much. I think it's more of a religious purity thing. The concern was bringing in a foreigner who didn't worship the God of Israel. Because Israel Israel really, it already had a king. You know why they didn't need a king for 400 years? Because they had a king. God was the king. And God ruled through his word. He ruled through his prophets. He ruled through the judges. But God was the king of Israel. He's always, he's the king of everything. He's the king today. Uh, but... But when it came time then to to have an earthly king, that earthly king had to be an Israelite. He had to be somebody who worshipped the God of Israel. He had to be a follower of God. And in in the old covenant period, generally speaking, the people of Israel were the ones who worshipped the God of Israel. And generally speaking, people who weren't a part of Israel didn't worship the God of Israel. So I think the real concern here is having someone leading God's people who worships another God, which would not make any sense at all considering that 
Israel was a holy nation. It was a kingdom of priests for God. Uh, so so that they had to have those requirements. And, you know, as I... Did you kind of trace those themes forward? I couldn't help but connecting them to the New Testament and some of the requirements for leadership even in the New Testament church. You, you know, you seem to see those same kind of threads. Uh, leaders of God's church in the New Testament must be chosen by God. And you're like, what? what? Like, like a prophet has to come to you and pour oil on your head and says, you are officially chairman of the deacons. You know, you know I anoint you. It's not how it works. Exactly. But in the same in some sense, God chooses leaders in the New Testament. You know, God gives spiritual gifts, right? The Holy Spirit gives gifts of helps. Some person is is good at administration. Some person has a gift of just being that person who comes alongside quietly and does whatever is needed. Another person has a gift of faith. Another person has a gift of teaching. Another person, scripture tells us, has a gift of leadership. That's a gift. And, And so all of those gifts are important. None of them is more important than the other, but they have different functions in the body. So it sort of stands to reason if God is giving teaching and leadership gifts to some, it's probably because he wants them to, to teach and lead in his body. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, it was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. God, God has given those things to the church. Uh, or think about, you know, just one more example in Acts chapter 20 when the Apostle Paul is talking to the uh, elders of the church of Ephesus as he's planning to go to Jerusalem for his last trip there. And Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, he says, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The Holy Spirit made you overseers. So, so even in the New Testament, even though we don't have prophets going around pouring oil on people's heads, there's a sense in which God is choosing the leadership of his people. And, and, and so we, we, we try to discern that as a body. We try to see whom God has touched in some way. I, I'm just thinking, this is a really appropriate text for us this Sunday because Tuesday night is our church's annual business meeting where the members of the church gather together. And one of the most important things we do at our annual business meeting is we we vote on who's going to be our leaders. We've, we elect elders, we elect deacons, we elect committee chairs. And, and as we do that, you know, how do we make that decision? Is it like a popularity contest? Do people get up and campaign for it? Do we say, well, I think I want that person to be an elder because I really like them. They, they seem really cool or nice. Um, is, it, is it sort of a seniority thing? Like, you know, when you've been here long enough, then it's your turn. Like, it's not... Based on turns, this isn't like the playground where it's my turn, you know. Now it's my turn. No, we get together to discern what God has been doing. We say, you know, that person, they really have been shepherding. They really have been teaching. You know, maybe God has given them a calling. As best we can tell, they seem to be gifted and called to that function. And not that that function is more important than another function. It's just different functions within the body. You know, you don't become an elder of a church in order to learn how to start shepherding people. You become an elder of the church because everyone recognizes you're already doing it. And you don't become an elder to learn how to start teaching the Bible. You become an elder because everyone recognizes you have been teaching the Bible to different people in different settings and different ways. It doesn't all have to look the same. And, and so it's about the body recognizing as best it can through prayer who God has raised up for different roles. Not only that, but I think leadership in the New Testament church also needs to be from among the brothers and sisters. Uh, 
you know, this may sound really basic, kind of like duh, but sometimes it's the things that are duh that we miss. But, you know, leaders in God's church actually need to be Christians. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. Anyone who's going to lead God's church needs to be born again. They need to be actually converted. They need to really be saved in a biblical sense of the word. If not, they shouldn't be leading God's church. You know, sometimes we lament in New England how little the gospel is preached. We we lament churches where there's a pulpit, but there's no word of God really taught in the pulpit. There's no gospel taught from the pulpit. And maybe in some cases the reason is because there's no gospel in the preacher. That the preacher hasn't repented and believed in Christ. That, that the preacher has not been saved. You know, just because somebody has a degree from a seminary and maybe is good at public speaking or maybe is really good at counseling, you know, or maybe is a good administrator and, and so they can run a church organization, it doesn't mean that they, that they actually know Jesus. <laughs> that they've actually been saved from their sins through faith in Christ. And so the first thing, anyone who wants to lead in any way in the church, you need to be a Christian. And so if you're thinking, you know, I love to serve, I love to get involved, I love to give back a little bit. Question number one, do you really know Christ? Are you really converted? Have you really put your faith in Jesus? Have you repented from your sins? And is all your confidence in Christ? Or is it in your own good deeds and your own, you know, I'm not, I'm not a bad person after all. Or is your confidence in Jesus? That's the first prerequisite for serving in the Lord's church in, in whatever capacity it is. The church is not a community service organization. Hopefully, we're out there in the community serving others as a body as we disperse but that's not primarily why we're here. In fact, this, I don't know, you guys may be shocked at this. The church is pri- not primarily even a missions organization. That's our penultimate purpose, missions and evangelism. But our primary purpose is not missions and evangelism. The church's ultimate purpose is worship. We are here to glorify God. And when I say worship, I don't just mean singing songs on Sunday morning. I mean our whole lives, Monday through Monday, all the week long, worshiping the Lord, glorifying Him. And so we do missions and we do evangelism because we want more people to worship the Lord. We want His glory to increase. But you know, there's going to be a day when we don't need missions and evangelism anymore. When we're in heaven, then then it'll just be worship. It'll be glory and savoring the Lord. So even missions and evangelism, which is what we're all about in some ways, is not what we're all about. It's a penultimate goal to the ultimate purpose. So all that to say... How could somebody possibly lead the church who doesn't worship Jesus? It's, it's totally illogical. It would be a train wreck. And it is. And so we need to be people who love the Lord. So, so Old Testament, New Testament. It's got to be chosen by God. It's got to be from among the brothers. But let's move on in Deuteronomy 17. Let's look at the second kind of grouping of commandments about the king. So the first is verse 15, eligibility requirements. Verses 16 and 17, you have three prohibitions. These are things the king is not allowed to do. Here's things the king shouldn't do. This is non-kingly behavior among the Israelites. And, and, it's that, and it have to do with things that the king is not supposed to collect or amass or acquire. So look at verse 16. The first thing the king isn't supposed to collect or amass or acquire are horses. Verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire great 
numbers of horses for himself. So, number one, don't have a lot of horses. Okay. What does God have against horses? Does God not like pets? I mean, what? Is God not an animal person? Like, why, why can't the king have horses? Well, what's the big deal? You know? Well, let me ask you this. When you look in the Bible, horses are typically associated with something. They typically have a certain connotation most of the time in the Bible. What, what, what are they associated with? Power, warfare, military might. You know, translation to modern times, the king shall not have a lot of F-16s and tanks and predator drones and, you know, th- th- that's the translation. This was the military strength of the king. You know, prayer and fasting, they go, to be- they go together. Horses and chariots, they go together. You, all, you see them together in the Bible. They, they literally go together. They go together in Scripture as well. So this was a prohibition against marshalling an enormous military force, really, is what it's about. Which is kind of funny, because don't you think that's what a king should do? This is, it's weird. This is a weird kind of king. It's an unking. You know, Israel says, we want a king like all the other nations. And God's like, okay, fine, you're going to have a king, but he's not going to be like the other nations. He's not going to go about building up a strong military, not in Israel. Because the Israelites were supposed to trust God for their victory. This was not a normal nation. This was God's nation. It, it didn't operate like the rest of the world. You know, Goliath threatened David, and David said, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you with the name of the Lord. And so Israel was to be a people who had victory through the power of God, not by their military prowess. And so the king was not to acquire and build up horses and chariots. Not only that, but also here in the text, there's this concern that it's going to lead them back to Egypt. It's going to lead them to buying from other nations, to importing horses. And in Egypt, you know, Egypt is like the symbol of slavery, bondage, going backwards, idolatry. And so God didn't want Israel leaning on these earthly things. You can't go back to Egypt. You need to trust in me. So don't acquire horses. Don't amass horses. Uh, Number two, don't amass wives. Verse 17, you must not take many wives. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. All of us who either are married or have been married know that your spouse is a part of you and, we're, and your spouse pulls on you in a certain direction. It's, it's just what happens. You know, it's, God, it's God's plan. The two become one flesh. Your, your lives become intertwined. And, and so if, if you're married and your spouse is pulling you a certain direction, like away from the Lord, it, it's extra difficult to keep following the Lord. It's not impossible, but it's harder work. It's like following the Lord when you're married and someone is pulling you away from the Lord. It's, it's like, you know, kind of going into a, you know, a stream in New Hampshire up to your waist and trying to walk up the stream. You can do it, but it's really hard. And sometimes you slide back. And, or it's like, you know, going uphill. It's just harder work because our spouses are connected to our hearts. Now, imagine if you had lots of spouses. <laughs> I, I mean, I just can't even imagine this. I, I read about... You know, for my wife, I can't imagine her having that problem. I mean, she's wonderful, and you know, but I, you know, I can't imagine like all you know having multiple spouses. Are you kidding me? All of the the politics. I mean, all the pulling in different directions. 
your heart being led different ways. And yet, you know, you can see the temptation. I'm king. I, I can have a harem. I can have lots of beautiful women. Right? You know, it's every man's dream, right? Well, apparently it's a nightmare. Because, uh, look, you're going to be led astray by, by this. Not only that, but, but it's, it's not just the appeal of sex. It's, it's actually, I think, something else going on here as well. Why would a king have many wives? Typically, one of the, re- one of the primary purposes of marriage among royalty is political alliance. You marry someone or you're... you're kid marries their kid or the duke marries the duchess or whatever so that you have political trust between nations so part of the idea here is you're you're marrying other nations kids so that you have peace between them the problem is those kids are coming from other nations where they worship other gods and so you're back to don't have a foreigner leading you because you're bringing people into the, the leadership of Israel who don't worship the God of Israel. I think of King Ahab. He marries Jezebel, princess of Sidon, for a political alliance. And, and he doesn't just get Jezebel. He gets Baal worship. He gets the worship of Ashtoreth. And so these foreign, foreigners are coming in. Again, it's not an ethnic or racial thing. It's a religious thing. These were God's people. They weren't to worship false gods. And so now... Here's this king making alliances, making allegiances with many wives. And rather than trusting in God to lead him, he's trusting in political maneuvering to protect Israel instead of trusting in the Lord alone. And then, of course, you get this third one, you know, money. The last little sentence in verse 17. So don't acquire weapons, don't acquire wives, don't acquire wealth. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And, you know, boy, we can all relate to that. How we, we just try to put our confidence in money. We put our confidence in our 401Ks. We put our confidence in our paychecks. We all do it. It's a constant temptation. But Israel's king was to be a beacon, a role model to all the Israelites, modeling for them what it looked like to trust in the Lord alone. And so he had to show them, look, I'm the king, and I don't have a huge army. And I don't have all these political alliances in this enormous harem. And, and, and I, don't, I don't have all this money. I mean, for crying out loud, that seems to me one of the best things about being a king. Is you could live large. You could have lots of money. But it's like, look, the king's like, I don't have that. I, I'm a king, but I'm not like the other kings. The king of Israel was supposed to be kind of an un-king. A king who didn't act like a king. Because he was trusting in the Lord. And so he was to be a model for all of Israel to look to and say, that's what it looks like when you trust the Lord completely. That's what it looks like. And we want to be like our king. And so the king was to lead them to a complete trust in the Lord in every way. Boy, what, what a lesson for us today, huh? How many, how many times have leaders fallen because they, they get into a position of power and they, they get involved in power, sex, and money? Just, it's the story of the human race. And here it is, don't acquire power, don't acquire women, don't acquire money. So what's the king supposed to do then? <laughs> so, okay, so you're the king, you can't do all those kingly things that kings tend to do, so what's, what's he supposed to do? And, and here I think we see the third grouping of teachings about the king. So the first is eligibility requirements, must be an Israelite chosen by God. Number two Don't amass weapons, don't amass wives, don't amass wealth. And then the third one is, here's what the king is supposed to do. 
And he's supposed to be a student of God's word. Fascinating. Look at verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life. Whenever a president takes office in America, there's all this buzz about the first hundred days. I don't know why, but that's always what they talk about. What are you going to do in your first hundred days? You know, as the elections come around next year, you'll hear that question. What would you do in your first hundred days of office? And after the first hundred days, you know, there's always a review. The first hundred days of the administration. You know, so it's like, well, King of Israel, what are you going to do your first hundred days? Well, God told me, apparently, I need to copy the Pentateuch by hand. I've been sitting in my, my, my chambers. I've had a scroll and a little lamp, and I've had another scroll, and I've just been copying down Genesis, Exodus, copying down Deuteronomy by hand. Could you imagine that? It, it, well, what are you going to do with that? Well, I've got to carry it around with me, and I'm going to read it every day. For how long? As long as I'm king. Every day. The king was to be the arch reader of Scripture among the Israelites. God's leaders must be readers of His Word. The number, it's the most important thing. Again, the unking. Why would a king do that? Because he must always know that he's not really the king, that only the Lord is king. He must always show and remember and recognize and reiterate that he is ruled by the Word of God and that he is simply there to obey and honor God's Word because God is the King. How does a king rule? By his Word. You know, if, if, you say, if there's a king and you're like, I, I follow that king, and that king tells you, all right, I want you to go there, and you go, I don't know if I want to do that. Like, you're not following the king. You follow the king's word. The king speaks. It's done. That's how you know someone's a king. That's what kings do. They speak. Kings rule by their word. But the story of the human race is the story of us rejecting the authority of the word of God. That is humanity in a spiritual nutshell. You want to understand the spiritual story of humanity? It's very simple. We have rejected the word of God as our authority. And everything has flown from that. Who was the very first king on planet Earth? Adam. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden and he made him the king. He said, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Adam's charge was a kingly charge. It was to be God... Adam and Eve, king and queen, and then all their kids, and then the world. And they were to rule over it as God's kind of vice regents and lead it. And, and God, but to make sure that Adam knew who was the boss, of course, God gave him a command. He said, don't eat that tree. I love it. You know, the king of Israel had to write down this huge scroll, the whole book of Deuteronomy or whatever. You know, Adam, Adam's instructions could fit like on a fortune cookie thing. <laughs> don't touch that tree, arrow. Right, you know, don't eat it. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Just read this every day and it's going to be great. Uh, and he didn't do it. You know, like, wow. Why, wouldn't Ad, why would Adam do that? Oh, yeah, I know why he'd do that. Because so would I. 
You, know, you tell me I can't do something, and that's what I want to do. So the king failed, and, and that's humanity in a nutshell. That's, that's humanity in a fortune cookie, spiritually. That's the spiritual dynamic of the human race across all cultures, all history, all religions, all politics, is we've rejected the word of our Creator. And as a result, this is the world we've, we've made for ourselves as we've usurped and rebelled against His authority. And so God's people, the church, are the people who are saved by Christ to learn what it means to be under the Word of God again. Uh, you know, we, we say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. We sing it, we say it. That's the basic Christian confession, confession Jesus is Lord. But, but practically speaking, how does Lord Jesus rule His church? It's through His Word. When we preach His Word, when we obey His Word, when we love His Word, when we implement His Word as best we can, we are we're submitting ourselves to the rule of the King by following what the King says. When we pick and choose from the Word, we're basically putting ourselves over the Word and saying, well, we're the kings. We can, you know, like Adam, do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that, however we see fit. And so it really comes down to who's the King. And it's by His Word in our response to His Word, that, that that is tested. But Israel's king was to read the Word, write it down, live by it, implement it. And notice what would happen. Look at verse 19. Look at the results. So that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. So this would humble the king before God. But not only that, it would humble him before his fellows. Verse 20. And not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the right or to the left, to the right or the left of this law. Wow, you know, isn't that the problem with everyone who gets put in charge of something? It always seems to go to their heads. Right? It's just, it's a problem. You know, I have a problem. You have a problem. It goes to our heads. So the word of God. If, if we're reading it, not, not so that we can become like theological you know, experts who look down our noses at everyone else, but if we really humble ourselves before the Word of God, then it humbles us before each other and, and it keeps leadership where it should be as from among the brothers. We, we keep that connection to our brothers and sisters. We're just one of them that God has called to a certain task, not because we're better or superior. You know, I look at that. I, I look at this teaching on kingship and I go, man, I would love to meet that king. To find some leader who always did the right thing, who wasn't all about acquiring power and money and privilege and, you know, who wasn't somehow always coming out on top, you know, to, to find that leader who loved God's word, to find a leader who was humble, like, I would follow that leader off a cliff. Where is that leader? I, I want to know that person. I just can't seem to find it. And I can't seem to be it. So I want to find that person so I can learn to be like that. I would love that. So, you know, my heart just cried, kind of yearns for this. And so you, you look onward in the Old Testament and you say, well, did that leader arise? And as you read through the Old Testament, that question echoes, where is this king? Where is this king? You look at the history of the kings of Israel and you go, eh, close but not quite. Ah, no, not really. Definitely not. You know, take the two greatest kings of Israel, the, 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 uh, you know, the high point of Israel's kingship, King David. He, in some ways, is the gold standard that defines kingship. 
And then there's that whole thing with Bathsheba, right? I mean, the, whole, the news all week, Representative Weiner, you know, doing these bad pictures on Twitter. That's nothing compared to what David did. Like, he took someone else's wife. She, she became pregnant. He killed the husband to cover up the scandal. Are you kidding me? Imagine if Representative Weiner had done that. I mean, it would be like, you know, people would be dragging him out into the streets. And yet this was God's great king. David was, is the gold standard of kingship in Israel. Wow. And yet he's not that king. He's still not quite that king. Take David's son Solomon. The golden age under Solomon. And what did Solomon do? Though God had appeared to him, though God had blessed him with wisdom unsurpassed in the world, what did King Solomon do? He acquired wealth. He, you know, you read Solomon. He's always building things and covering it with gold. Like it must, you know, it says there was so much silver in, in Jerusalem that it was considered as of no value. That's how wealthy it was. Solomon acquired thousands of horses and chariots. Solomon had this enormous harem full of wives and concubines. But what does it say? You know, if you have some time today, go back and read 1 Kings chapter 10 and chapter 11. Just if you have some time later on today. 1 Kings 10 and 11, it tells the story of Solomon and how he did all these things. Just one by one in opposition to what's taught here in this text. And Solomon had all those wives and what happened with the wives. They came from other nations and they led him astray. And let me just be clear. I'm I'm not picking on wives as if this is a sexist thing like women lead men astray. That's not the point. It's a religious thing. The point is a worshiper of God was being led astray by a non-worshipper of God. That's the point. And so as Solomon was led astray by people that he had tied his heart to with, who didn't worship the Lord, by his old age, Solomon is building altars to Molech and to Chemosh, the, the vile gods of you know, Ammon and Moab that practiced child sacrifice in the fire. Evil gods, demonic gods. Like, how did Solomon get there? Well, he, he wasn't the king. And so throughout the whole Old Testament, it's like, where's this king? Who is he? And then we turn the pages to the New Testament. And out of a little village in Nazareth comes a, a peasant, comes a working man, a rabbi that no one's heard of. And his name is Jesus. And we discover, as Jesus takes to the world scene, that he begins preaching a message The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. The king that that we couldn't establish, that we couldn't be, God says, fine, I'm going to do it myself. And God has established his king and his kingdom. And it's Jesus. Take Jesus. This is kind of an interesting exercise. And candle Jesus against Deuteronomy 17. It's a fit. It's hand in glove. Jesus was chosen by God. No, Jesus was sent by God, not just chosen. It's not like the Arian heresy where God picked some guy. This was from the Father's side, Jesus came. And, and he came into the world and he was announced by angels. At his baptism, he was crowned king. You know that, that weird scene where Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist and the, the dove comes down from heaven and the voice says, you are my son. Like, What's that all about? That was a coronation ceremony is what that was. Just as the oil is poured on the head of the king, symbolizing the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Jesus had the Holy Spirit come down on him, not from a prophet, but anointed from the Father himself. That phrase, you are my son, 
that comes right out of Psalm chapter 2, which is enthronement kingship language. And so it was God declaring, not some prophet, not even John the Baptist declaring, it was God saying, this is my king whom I have sent, who I myself will pour the oil on him. And this is who it is that you are to worship. He was a brother Israelite. He was of the house and line of David. Jesus did not acquire anything. He did not acquire horses. Even the colt he rolled into Jerusalem was borrowed. The guy had no weapons. He had no power. When they came to arrest him in the garden of Gethsemane, they came with weapons and, and clubs and things. And Jesus said, am I leading a revolt that you had to come at me with all these weapons? Like, I, I'm just a teacher. What, what do you, who do you, I'm not a zealot. This isn't a rebellion. Why are you, you know, brandishing all this stuff at me? It doesn't make any sense. If I wanted to, I could call 10,000 legions of angels right now and nuke you, but it's not why I'm here. So go ahead and take me. Whatever. I'm here to do the Father's will. You know, Jesus did not acquire a harem. Jesus has only one bride. Jesus did not acquire silver and gold. I mean, from what we can tell in the Gospels, he didn't have any money when he was doing his ministry. It seems that he was an itinerant preacher who was supported by some people who followed him around with means who gave money to support him, is what it seems like. You know, once one person came to him in the Gospels and said, Master, I'll follow you, and Jesus gives him a warning. He goes, look, foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You're going to follow me? Okay, I'm homeless, <laughs> you know. In a literal sense, I don't have a place where I live. I just kind of travel around as God leads. He didn't have anything. He didn't acquire silver and gold. In fact, just the opposite. The picture of Jesus is constantly pouring out, giving away, healing, teaching, though exhausted, teaching, healing, finally pouring out His body on the cross and His blood on the cross. It was the opposite of acquisition. Jesus is the ultimate un-king, right? And then the Word of God. You know, He knew the Word. He memorized the Word. He preached the Word. He interpreted the Word. He is the Word. He brings a new Word. He's, he's the epitome of God's law among us. He goes up on the mountain like Moses and gives the Sermon on the Mount, the new law. Jesus is the Word. He, he is this King you look at Deuteronomy 17 and you say, this is Jesus. This is Jesus we're reading about in Deuteronomy 17. Ultimately, here he is. 1,400 years before he ever stepped on the world scene, God was telling them who the king really needed to be. And Christ fulfills it to even greater degree than we see here required in Deuteronomy 17. And that's why when Pilate met Jesus, Pilate had to ask him, are you the king of the Jews? Because he sure didn't look like a king. He sure didn't act like a king. And Jesus, I'm the king of the Jews. <laughs> My kingdom's not of this world. It's totally different. Jesus is the un-king. And we can even take it one step further and say the ultimate expression of Jesus' unkingness is that he died for those who had rejected his kingship. That's amazing. Christ went to the cross to save the rebels, to save those who've been waging a guerrilla warfare against him, to save the insurgents. 
Jesus died to save the terrorists who are trying to overthrow his kingdom. It's amazing. You know, he died to save us. He died to save me. We look at our lives and we we say, how have we been at, at following the king? Not very good. We've tried to acquire power. We've tried to acquire uh, men and women. We've tried to acquire gold and silver. We've not read the Word of God every day. We've, we've not been a people who look to God's Word on a regular daily basis. We haven't you know, submitted ourselves to the Word of God. I, I was at a pastor's conference um, several years ago. It was like a luncheon, and, and they brought Charles Stanley to speak. Some of you know Charles Stanley. He's a kind of a, a well-known Bible teacher and preacher and just very, you know, he's one of those guys who's been doing it well for like decades and has been faithful and hasn't blown up or anything. He's just steadily preached the word and God's blessed his ministry. Well, Charles Stanley spoke and, and you know, he spoke about basically about how not to, to blow up and burn out as a pastor. And he had like seven steps that you go through when you, you start fading away as a pastor. And, you know, and I forget what all the steps were, <laughs> but, but I remember the first step. It's kind of like if you just get that one right and don't do that one, you won't do the other six because it was kind of a progression. The first step was, the, the first key to staying vital in ministry was every day spending time in the Word of God in prayer. He said once a pastor stops that discipline, he has taken the first step to burn out and blowing up. And so we look at ourselves, and, have, and that's not just for pastors, that's for all of us. You know, have we wandered from the Lord? Well, we've left His Word. And it's like, that's the story of our, our lives. We've not been the leaders that we should be. We've not honored God's laws we should have. We aren't the leaders that God expects. We am not the husband I should be. I've, I've not been the pastor that you deserve as a church. We've not been the fathers and mothers that we should be. We haven't been the school teachers that our kids really need. We, we fail in so many ways. And to think that our rebellion has been responded to by God by Him sending the Prince to die for us. Think about world history. Tell me one example from world history where anything like this has ever happened. Where the king died for the rebels. Some of you are political junkies. You, know, you follow all the talk shows and the blogs and the polls. Can you tell me where in politics this kind of thing happens? This is utterly unique that the king would die for the rebels to forgive them and save them and reconcile them and grant them amnesty and forgiveness. And not just forgive them, but make them part of the royal family? <laughs> it's like you've got to be kidding me. This doesn't make any sense. I know it doesn't. This is the gospel. And it's from God. It's not something people made up. God has blown us away with the gospel that the enemies of God could become royal family members because the prince died for them. It's amazing. Does the gospel affect you at all? Don't you want to just bow down before this king? And if you don't, like, what are you waiting for? What other king could possibly be like this? You know, we all follow somebody. Let's be very honest with ourselves. We all follow somebody. 
For a lot of us, the person we follow is ourselves. We're the king. But like, look in the mirror, man. You're the king? You're the king? How do you measure up? I'm the king? (laughs) How do I measure up? You don't have a leg to stand on, and neither do I. No, we need the real king. And Jesus Christ is the only one who not only fits this, but surpasses it and could actually save us from our rebellion against God's kingship. So I just plead with you this morning, I invite you, I summon you to come to the king, to turn away from sin, to renounce your rebellion against the king, and to put all your hope in Jesus Christ, to love him. You know, the king is coming back someday on a white horse with 10,000 legions of angels. But today he stands with open arms to embrace anyone who will come to him, no matter what your background is. You may have been a captain in the guerrilla warfare insurgency against God. And there is forgiveness. Come to Christ today. Let's pray.